Hi, Marcy. So nice to have you with us today. Great, great to see you, Paula. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm so grateful for everything, all the teaching that you've provided us uh, with through the Unified Mindfulness community. I know you're very active in that, and I've learned so much uh, myself from that community, really benefited from the group. So thank you for that. And um, I'm just really excited to get to know you a little bit better, get to know uh, about your mindfulness journey. Uh, so why don't we start there? Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you started with mindfulness practice? What was going on in your life? What were you hoping for? And, you know, what did you do? Let's just start at the beginning. Sure, thanks. Yeah, I'll just... Um... <clears throat> be really candid about that. It was really just because I was in recovery, a 12-step program for addiction. And um, having some kind of practice is a part of traditional 12-step programs. And <clears throat> I was fortunate to have a strong community. I took it very seriously. I had great results in my recovery community. And so I was just looking for what was going to work for me. Um, you know, the idea of being more settled down was probably my vague idea of what meditation would be about. That appealed to me, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought it was possible at that time. But, um, but I had started to experience a lot of what I wouldn't have thought was possible for me with my life starting to come together and things getting worked out. So I just really went on a search. I knew a lot of people who practiced different with different teachers and different methods, and I was just trying everything. So I, I tried a lot of probably pretty unusual stuff and went and, you know, saw people channeling and drove out to Riverside to sit with a Jane teacher. And, you know, pretty much I just tried everything. I went to big, um, a big event with Jack Cornfield, a big event with Eckhart Tolle, a talk with Byron Katie. And, wow. and then was just trying to practice on my own too and asking everybody I knew, how do you practice? How do you practice? And, and um, I just was determined to you know, grow this part of my life, but I didn't really know what I was looking for. Um, I did notice that I appreciated when I started listening to Jack Cornfield recordings, and I was always an avid reader, so I'd read his books. And I really liked the attention he gave to ordinary thinking, which I had a ton of, like most people. And uh, I appreciated that I didn't have to get rid of it mm -hmm. because I couldn't at that time, of course. So, so I liked that. So I knew I had an affinity for this Vipassana style. And then I had a friend who had known Shenzhen for a long time. The, um, the uh, teacher who created the unified mindfulness system. So Shenzhen had a long time ago lived out here and there where I live in the Los Angeles area. And he was still coming out a lot to do retreats out here in Southern California. And my friend had, um, had been sitting, had sat with him years before. So she took me to a public talk of his 
in 2004. And um, it's funny, it did take me a long time after that to start doing more intensive practice. But I just remember that day, I just did a day long with Shenzhen and the way he spoke so clearly about how meditation works and why it works and what to do about it. He talked about the three attentional skills that we always talk about in unified mindfulness, concentration, clarity, and equanimity. And it was like, Eureka, I understand. And it had, it just, like Shenzhen says, took the mist out of mysticism. Mm. So I was like, this is fantastic. But I still did not establish a daily practice. It's still, I, it was like I was sold, but I still didn't really know how. So I just tried. I kept trying. I kept, you know, looking for teachers. And slowly I realized <clears throat> I really wanted that direct contact. I really wanted to have some feedback directly into my practice. And so I, I realized that I found it unsatisfying or not helpful enough to be in a big auditorium where there might be hundreds of people and I couldn't get any um, direct interaction mm -hmm. with the teacher. So um, then when Shenzhen started the home practice program in 2008, I started doing that phone-in program that still continues now once a month. And then uh, finally in 2012, I started um, retreating and doing intensive practice. That, I think, was the real game changer. So it was the intensive retreat doing a week that everything changed. And that was the point at which I realized, this is for me. I found my thing. I got to do this. And I have no idea how I'm going to make that happen because I had three kids at home. Oh, wow. I didn't have the money. I didn't have the time. But... Um, something changed in me at that retreat. And I, I realized, I think we would just call it an insight. Like I had this insight and it clicked that this, the possibilities that I thought before were maybe just for a saint or, you know, a one in 10 million people to have this kind of clarity and a sense of freedom in your life, all of a sudden I thought, well, this is, this is everybody's birthright. Wow. This is available to me. And I just didn't know. And then it's like, once I knew it was just, I, I'm going to do whatever it takes. So, so it really took off from there. I did whatever I had to do to keep retreating and wound up doing 20 retreats within a few years. And wow. I really threw myself into it. So that's kind of the origin of practice for me. And then just like you indicated in our private conversation earlier, you know, it did change from there because I was doing so much. Of course it changed, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, but Shenzhen was my entry into understanding finally, like, yes, this is really going to radically changed my life for the better and I'm all in. Wow. What a beautiful yeah. story, Marcy. Thank <laughs> you for sharing. So just the question for you. So 2012, you started doing the intensive retreats and when was around what time would you say uh, you started the search? You said you met Shinzen in 2004, just to give people kind of like an overview of 
that it takes a long time to kind of find your way, right? Like when would you say you started like your search that, and you had so much motivation, yeah. right? Cause you wanted to, it sounds like you wanted to minimize suffering. Like you had a lot of suffering in your mind mm-hmm. and uh, with the addictions and you were looking for something, but didn't quite know, know what. So around what time yeah. was that? Yeah. You know, I, I think I have a, an even harder time answering that precisely than many people. I hear people all the time say, I've been meditating for 10 years or 20 years, or they know a date. And I'm more like in the camp of, um, you know, I was always drawn to truth and self-discovery and interested in what lies behind what we can see and the goodness of people and all kinds Mm. of things that we might call, you know, things that seem spiritual, but I just didn't know where to go for it. I didn't I didn't, you know, grow up in a family that put a lot of value on that kind of thing. And so I, I just didn't know. Um, but it, so it all kind of blended together. And, uh, and really, I think um, being in recovery gave me that place to, um, to have this clear reason that you know, this needs to happen now. And, and I had more presence of mind just by a function of being healthier, being mentally and emotionally and physically healthier was required for me to be able to settle down enough to even do something like that. So, so that was in 2002 when I got sober. And by 2004, I was like, okay, this meditation thing is the center of my practice now. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, and um, and when you were searching, were there some guideposts along the way? Like you said, when you met Shinzen, it just connected. Was it more that it, may, it needed to make sense for you, the practice or the clear direction? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I would say I, I know that in retrospect, and I didn't know what I was looking for until I found it. Um, and I think for me, a lot of that had to do with, it is what you're saying, but I think under that too, is because there was a sense of safety in that, like what my mind couldn't understand at all, um, didn't feel safe. I, I didn't want something weird. I didn't want to be involved in a cult, you know, I didn't want to be taken advantage of or lose myself as at that time, a young woman. And, um, so it was just that it was so pragmatic and it was easy to understand. Yes. And I think that was like very delicious and calming and satisfying for like the analytical mind Mm -hmm. to just say, Oh, this makes sense. And then I could relax and stop struggling so much and trying to figure things out. Yeah. I love that. That's something I love about, um, Shinzen's approach too, that it's, it's, makes sense like it's logical <laughs> and it's and it's it's science based so it's like a real thing you know you know you're doing something that that even though it's hard to it's not tangible because you're training your mind and the mind is not it's not something that we can see like we can see our muscles but it's like you get clear on on what it is that you're actually doing cuz i don't know if this was your experience but it was definitely mine that those first meditation experiences don't feel so blissful, right? Like we're looking for, for, um, 
more ease and more joy, I guess, or freedom. But at first it, it can feel like a struggle, right? Was that, was that your experience as well, that it wasn't easy? <laughs> yeah. In fact, you know, I've never had a tendency toward bliss. <laughs> I know a lot of people do. And, you know, wonderful if that's someone else's experience. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was never, that was never my experience. It was, um, I remember when I heard him speak about the three attentional skills, I thought, uh, oh my gosh, I can learn to concentrate. That would be amazing mm -hmm. because I experienced myself as being very scattered and not able to follow through, not able to stay motivated and do the things I had set my mind to doing. And then of course, then that had a vicious cycle. Then I would have a low self-opinion because of not doing what I intended to do. And what I heard in his talk was just super practical. It was like, oh, mindfulness isn't only this spiritual thing that we can't talk about. It's also this very practical thing that you'll see results in your in your daily life, in your ordinary circumstances. And so because that made sense and I knew I needed that, I just totally believed him. It was it was reasonable. So it was like, yeah, I'm 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 in. I'm gonna see that. And somewhere, I can't remember how you just said it, but in your question about, you know, what we're looking for and we don't, you know, maybe don't have great experiences right away, but but I could see that just the ordinary experiences that, you know, that, that that would change because I had had that experience in recovery. Like I had already learned that when I do certain things differently than I have before, you know, change happens mm -hmm. and I improve in ways I didn't even know I needed to improve, much less that I could improve. So it's, you know, it's like once I understood what mindfulness was, um, I had just utter trust and faith in the process. And then, and then it did take a couple years after that, but I had like a great springboard because I just knew it was gonna work and it was just a matter of not giving up before I started seeing results. And then of course, eventually I got tremendous results. Yeah, oh, wonderful. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a, there's a level of, of trust, I guess, that's required at the beginning, and you had also mentioned in your story the importance of um, moving from just, say, a big audience or some, like these days it would be maybe like something you find on YouTube or something to having like a an actual personal connection with a teacher, right? That you found that made a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that... Um... <clears throat> And I guess that's remained a part of my own signature. Like I didn't know that it was before. I was just feeling into what was going to work for me. And uh, and this is my experience of most teachers in general is they teach what works for them, you know? So just like you have this theme with MT uh, mindfulness, it's, you know, whatever works for anybody. So for me, I really needed and thrived on direct contact. And then that has stayed um, the core of how I work too. The most important thing to me as a teacher is having direct contact with people that I'm coaching yeah. because everybody's different. And then you get to specifically, you know, address what's going on for this person, not just to 
technique, but their background, the context, you know, what they like, what's working for them so that, you know, being able to um, be around Shenzhen three times a year at first for those retreats and um, a couple of things, you know, being in a room with them and just listening and um, taking in the way he expressed, like that's a teaching too. And then having the one-on-one times when I would get that experience of his offering something to my individual practice. All of that was really helpful, especially those first two years. It, it was uh, it was huge yeah. for that time. Yeah, mm-hmm. so great. So um, I don't know if this is this the case for you, but sometimes I find... I've been meditating in a particular way or something's worked, but either something in my life shifts or it's just not working the same way or um, or there's something that comes up emotionally that's hard to work with. So are those the kinds of things that Shinzen would would help with? What were your interactions with mm. him like? Like did he, did he give you what to practice or you knew what to practice and he gave you tips or how did that go? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question for me, too, because I thought you were going one place and then you went another. So I'm trying to um, keep track of both uh, because it wasn't it wasn't so much my experience there. And then after a couple of years, I, you know, I did um, need to really branch out and get other input that I needed, which is I think what you're asking about. So the first couple of years when I had the most um, just, you know, just training with Shenzhen, um, a lot of this was um, these spikes in attentional skills so that those one-on-one interactions coming with very specific, really technical questions about my practice, you know, Hmm. Um, this is what's happening when I practice, what should I do? This is, um, a a type of distraction or a type of mental challenge or emotional challenge. What strategies should I apply? So I was really focused on just the nuts and bolts of my formal meditation practice when I would talk to him. And, um, and I think, you know, that was different from a lot of people I knew who had, known him in the earlier years for the past couple decades where he had helped them a lot even you know with whatever was coming up in their life and I think it was maybe just different for me because I had had a strong community and foundation and recovery so it was like I had another place where I was doing that and then when I was going for meditation I was just really focused on my technique and my strategy and deepening my skills and whatever practice I was doing. So he would just, you know, talk to me about, um, you know, well, try focus in here and try doing in and out at the Mm -hmm. same time. And I'll be back in 10 minutes and tell me what happened. So we, you know, we do things like that. Um, Although there was a time, I'm glad I remembered to tell you this though, that after I started intensive retreating, I did have a resurgence of panic attacks after I'd been free from them for about 10 years. And um, now I know that this is not an uncommon thing for a dedicated practitioner to have as some kind of 
um, unpleasant or adverse reaction to intensive practice. Um, the great thing was that I, you know, had been, I had such a stable base going into it and felt really um, well supported. I just thought, wow, I something is really wrong with me. I'm having difficulty. I feel afraid, just generalized fear and, you know, this nervousness. And so I, I called Shenzhen from home, which he used mm. to encourage that and say, if you have any trouble, call me. Um, I, I tended to have so much trouble after retreats that then that became the thing that I did for many years after that was like, if anybody has trouble on retreat, call me because Shenzhen stopped offering that service. And, and then I've offered that service for a long time because I know how it is. But that was a time when he was a huge help. And I got to see that in the moment support with something like that when I called him and, and explained that I was having trouble and I needed help. And he asked first, um, you know, what the indicators were. And I told him about my breathing and my heart rate and my mind state. And and he was very responsible. He asked first if I, you know, needed medical help, if I had any conditions like this. And then I said, no, I, you know, I don't. I, I mean, I used to, I've been treated, I'm not being treated now. And I know I can do this if you'll just tell me what to do. Hmm. And he trusted my clarity. And then we did, so we were on the phone, but I was at home. And he, you know, give me a practice to do for 10 minutes, do this, call me back, do this, call me back. So he was teaching me how to disentangle and yes. focus on one thing at a time to calm my nervous system. And, you know, that was, that was one of many uh, just huge transformative experiences I had working with him directly. Some of them were on retreat. You know, I've had small breakthroughs, big breakthroughs um, several times by doing that phone work with him that were That's amazing. Beautiful. That one was is something that I think a lot of people can relate to, this kind of yes. intense anxiety. And the, it's so, I can't overstate how empowering it is to find out that, you know, that I can work through that with mindfulness, with doing a technique. And, yeah. and certainly it's made me a better coach and a better teacher because, you know, I've been through that too. <laughs> so, yes. so it's like, I feel pretty clear on, you know, what I'm qualified to manage and what I'm not. And those, I'm really comfortable in those arenas. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple things in there that I'd love to unpack. So you mentioned disentangle. Uh, and uh, and we uh, at MT Mindfulness teach Shinzen's technique of see, hear, and feel. So just to clarify for people, that would mean to kind of take out the very, like, what are you seeing? What are you feeling? What are you hearing? And that helps to kind of lower the anxiety. Is that how you would explain it? Or how would you explain Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he had me do one sense category at a time and um, to help not get so overwhelmed because my what we call the inner system of thoughts and emotions my inner system was just going crazy and what we know is there's like a critical mass and if people get past a certain point 
then there, this is, you know, what you'd call in trauma sensitive mindfulness like this, you know, once you're in hyper arousal, it's kind of like it's too late, you might need help getting regulated. But once he taught me that in real time, then I became able to do that for myself, too. I got better and better at seeing where I was approaching getting out of my window of tolerance, and I could focus on one thing at a time instead of letting my mind jump around to all of these different places. But I know, too, when I started meditating, I didn't have that capacity. I didn't have enough concentration and clarity to know that my mind was jumping around, to know how to focus it on one thing at a time. Totally. Um, and the the other thing uh, that I think is interesting and it's kind of related is that uh, a lot of the times the challenges we go through, we then end up being able to help others, right? Because there's so many things that, that might come up and we say, oh no, this is coming up and I wish it wasn't, right? Like whether it's anger or sadness or, or fear, um, but then it's, it's an opportunity if we can have the right support um, to learn how to navigate through and also um, have that balance. I love that, that you said, Marcy, that he asked you, what's the medical, you know, do you have medical support as well? Like I know for me uh, with depression, a lot of times I would go on these long retreats before I met Shinzen and then I would come out like more more depressed and they were like oh no problem you're just kind of processing through but it's like but I need to go to work and I need to you know and so and so I did take you know some medication some I had some help with that and that they both can go together that we can get the supports we need to come back into our window of tolerance and then we can also use these tools to to feel less overwhelmed I guess right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah, so um, that's so great. So then you had these uh, retreat experiences with Shenzhen, uh, and what was happening at home? At, how did you find the time to do them, and what was it like when mm-hmm. you came back from them? Did you have a family at that time, or was it before your family? Like, how was how was everything at home? Yeah, it was very <laughs> challenging. What I learned pretty quickly that at that time when I was going to a lot of Shenzhen retreats, I was the only regular with little kids at home. And there mm-hmm. had been other people, you know, in and out, um, but, you know, just not at that time. Um, nobody who lived nearby me because I don't live in Los Angeles. I live in the suburbs. And um, there was just nothing at so, and I think, um, you know, my major focus then was I have to get this practice well established. And I talked to every facilitator at retreats, you know, people would volunteer to coach. I talked to all of them. Um, uh, Juliana, who's the head trainer at Unified Mindfulness, she was my personal coach for a couple of years. So I did a lot of things to try to establish that practice. Um, You know, some people said, oh, do insight timer and you can collect these stars. But I found that I'm not motivated by stars, but I am motivated by accountability. So having Uh a coach helped me. And then I made some friends at the retreats. And this my one friend who's still my very best friend, because we share a passion for practice. Um, I knew that he did a sitting group every morning, and and so he sat 
every morning at six o'clock, no matter what. <clears throat> so I asked him if I could sit at that time every day and just send him a text and, you know, to say, I'm sitting with you, I'm sitting with you. Mm-hmm. And so I, <clears throat> you know, I hooked into somebody else's practice to establish my own practice. Um, <clears throat> and I got up earlier. Um, I had, you know, the three kids and it was not realistic for me to find a time once the day got going. So I made yes. the time in the morning every day. And um, and there were, you know, there were just ongoing ups and downs. So whenever I came back from retreat, you might relate to this, Paula, based on what you said a minute ago, was, uh, you know, I'd come back and I would just feel wide open and very connected to my family and like, oh my gosh, I am currently the best version of myself, but it would only last for about 24 hours. Yes. And then that, and then I'd be devastated because it was like knowing how much better I could be and not being able to maintain it. You know, that was the hard part, but it was motivating because mm-hmm. I knew what was possible. Um, and it was just, you know, it's difficult to come back into everyday life and be bombarded by our normal responsibilities. It's a lot. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you had your formal practice. You woke up early. I do the same because that's kind of the only time uh, where there's some quiet. Uh, and then did you do informal practice during the day? Um, what did that look like for you? Yeah, I I did wherever I could during the day too. But really... Um, I was usually only really motivated by suffering. <laughs> so, you know, if I was in enough pain, I would do anything. Um, and I really, I focused on formal practice, I think, because my primary interest had always been insight. Like I really wanted to get to the bottom of this thing and find out what's what, let's see how far this goes. So that was very much my nature. And, um, The funny thing is, I really didn't appreciate the value of informal practice until I started teaching. And when I started, um, there was a strong interest at my kids' school, because mindfulness has become so well-known. A lot of people want this in schools. Um, And so I started, started there, started teaching at school to parents and kids and teachers, and uh you know, and I introduced the standard program that we teach at Unified Mindfulness, and it includes informal practice. And I was blown away when I taught this to parents, and they picked it up immediately. And they would come back the next week and go, I taught this to my son as we were driving to school. And I did this when my chicken died. And I did this when I was in the ER. And I was like, wow, this this is really useful. It's funny because that was really the game changer for me. And and I think it also speaks to how in Unified Mindfulness, we talk about the pillars of practice Mm -hmm. and how helpful it is to ourselves to be, um, you know, sharing whatever we can, however we're interested in doing it with others too. And that benefited me so much. So by teaching others, 
was the way I became a believer in informal practice. So it was really, you know, years into it before I really went, wow, that's, that's amazing, actually. <laughs> and then I started getting more interested and in not only using it in times of suffering. And yeah. now I think it's really, I mean, it's really just kind of an all the time thing. Like I, I love to just be attentive to what's really going on right now instead of uh, making it something I do outside of life. Now it's like, mm. well, that's, that's the nature of attention, always wanting to be attentive to what's happening right now. Yeah, yeah, that was a big game changer for me as well because um, with busy lives, sometimes having a long practice and I used to really try um, and I was really tired also, you know, if you wake up too early and then you're meditating and then you're up, you know, late doing stuff, it can be tiring. But this idea that your formal practice really can be 10 minutes, you know, and then informal practice, just 30 seconds to two minutes of a micro hit. And it can be when you're walking the dog or when you're with your kids. Um, uh, or the background practice that you can just have 20% of your attention on, you know, the sensations in your body, like feel, feel in while you're in a meeting, right? Or when you're mm-hmm, cooking mm-hmm. or somebody, Campbell from our, from uh, also from Unified Mindfulness taught me feel rest when you're doing the dishes at night. Cause I said, I'm so tired by the end of the day. I don't have time to practice. She's like, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing the dishes and making lunch. So now I do feel rest when I'm making lunch and doing the dishes in the evening, yeah, which is yeah. amazing. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you so about um, the other pillars, which you've touched on because you have accountability, so you're getting support and then you're giving support for um, when you're teaching. So do you want to talk a little bit about those pillars? Um, so do you mean just those two or all the pillars we also have? So, you know, the practice, daily practice. And- yes. And intensive practice. So for me, intensive practice now is primarily with my Zen teacher. So I'm a Rinzai Zen teacher, and I practice at the Zen temple whenever I can. And um, and to me, it's uh, really important to my style of practice, what my interests are, that intensive practice. But I love how it doesn't have to be that, to your point about informal practice. And now, you know, I encourage people all the time. I always talk about informal practice. I just didn't understand the value early on. And same thing with intensive practice. Like that can just be, you know, the home practice program that I talked about earlier that's been going on since 2008. Like you can do intensive practice by calling into a phone meeting for two hours. So that one's huge. Um, yeah. The, and you know, it just, um, it just um, gives a lot of momentum that's really difficult to get any other way. So it's like having a personal trainer, you right. know, getting that intensive practice really increases motivation and gives you like a taste of how, you know, how clear, things can be, how good you can feel, how easy it can be to concentrate. Um, But yeah, giving support and getting support. I think I do. I do both Mm -hmm. every single day. I I don't think there are any days that I don't. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, and they're, you know, they're just, they're all one thing. It's so wonderful to talk about practice because it's my absolute passion. So it's hard to even disambiguate, you know, getting support from giving support. Yeah, that's so lovely. Uh, Yeah, and I love how um, over time just the presence itself is like support, like just seeing you and your your way helps me calm my nervous system and we just kind of all support each other. Great. So I just have a couple more questions. I'd be curious to learn a little bit about the Zen that you're doing now, how you found that and what that's Mm -hmm. like. Uh, So you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, When, so when I was going to a lot of Shenzhen retreats, there were a couple of things. One was there was an old student of his who um, had a large property in Ojai, which isn't far from me, and they had weekend retreats. So I was supplementing my unified mindfulness practice with, you know, whatever else I could fill in. I was going there. It was kind of Zen style, but also Shenzhen had for many years been the Japanese translator for Suzaki Roshi, who was the longtime Roshi of Rinzai-ji here in the Los Angeles area. And um, because of that, he talked about him a lot at retreats, and there were several people who he'd recommended to that uh, community, including Juliana and another friend of mine who I'd known here, and our kids went to school together for a little while. So, <clears throat> so I asked them about that, and it just it suited my personality immediately, which this may sound awful to some people, but when my friend Maggie said, like, oh, well, there's so much structure and, you know, everything you do, you do together. You everybody eats the same way. You walk in the building together. You walk out the same way. You're always in line. Um, you know, any mistakes that you get, you'll get corrected. She described it a little bit to me. And because I'd already done a lot of retreats, the connection I made was like, oh, the simple environment that allows me to drop all my daily distractions and work on this deep, subtle stuff I never have time to sit with, time to work through. I could hear how what Rinzai Zen was doing was taking that way up. That it's like, we're going to take this up to the nth degree until you don't need to decide anything. It's all decided for you. There's nothing optional in the program. And, um, and you can tell, this is my own interpretation now, having been a practitioner for several years, is uh, we work alone as meditators, building our attentional skills and noticing when we might be distracted and bringing our attention back. And in Rinzai Zen practice in particular, anytime your attention wavers, it's immediately visible to everyone because you've lost the thread of what you're supposed to be doing. So if we're sitting in formal practice, if we're chanting, if we're doing meals, if we're doing yard work, the moment our attention isn't where it's supposed to be, we'll miss something. And so it's a training. It's a very intensive training in attentional skill building, which, you know, in unified mindfulness, we say that's what all contemplative traditions are doing. They just talk about it in different ways. So I heard that 
I understood from her description, oh, this could be a huge accelerator. It sounded beautiful to me. It made my heart sing. Um, so I started training at Mount Baldy here in Los Angeles, and um, and I just loved it immediately. It was really hard, and I and I needed a challenge. Like I wanted a challenge. I had that kind of personality that was like, all right, I want something harder. I want to feel like I'm uh, really working for it. And I had a taste for that sense of working hard and having a payoff. And you know, and the payoff is then when you can see something so beautiful and clear in an ordinary experience, a pine cone or an egg or an electrical outlet and, and being so enraptured by something ordinary, that is the experience of the attentional skills being really heightened. And so, uh, you know, I was seeing how the Zen environment was um, developing my skills faster and with more precision than I had been doing. So I, I liked that. And I had already um, been looking into, too, when I was still retreating on site with Shenzhen, I became really interested in Advaita and in Zen and was just reading Nisargadatta and Ramana Maharshi, the great Advaita teachers, and um, getting into those reading and feeling a lot of um, just resonance with those styles. And, um, and Zen is still um, pretty, not that hard to find a, a traditional teacher. It's, um, there's a lot of modern Advaita teachers, but not, not, as, not as easy to find very traditional Advaita teachers. And so the, you know, the Zen was something I could do. Now then, that Roshi is no longer living. And the Roshi I was practicing with was visiting from Japan. So it took a few more years to find my current teacher, Ursula Gerand, who teaches at her temple in Northern California. And she had trained in, in Japan when she was young for many years. And I love having a female teacher too. It's amazing when I met her. And, um, you know, felt the power and clarity of her presence and, and being a woman able to have this, this way of communicating without a single wasted or excess breath or syllable was incredible, just incredible to experience and so that's um, that's my main teacher now is Ursula Durand. Oh, that's so beautiful. And it's so interesting to see how we're drawn to, right? Like that you're drawn to the structure and it really called to you. And so then you tried it and then you found one teacher and then it leads to something else. And uh, it's, it's, it's a truly a journey, right? Like it's a lifelong right, right. discovery and deepening. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and still, yeah. Um, like, you know, I, I know that, you know, sometimes we, we meet a lot of people in unified mindfulness who come to unified mindfulness from Zen. So mm -hmm. sometimes people practice a tradition for a long time that doesn't have a lot of explanation or a lot of um, precision and language or pragmatic discussion about everyday life. And 
So I feel like they're such a great compliment because it can be a very, you know, esoteric or feel kind of religious or why do we do this kind of a thing. And so I, I love that, you know, I have this framework of unified mindfulness that, you know, that's a great way to meet people and to talk to people about what's happening or how this can benefit while at the same time, my, you know, my own, what's fueling me and what's feeding me and help makes me feel resourced is my Zen practice, but I can explain it to people with unified mindfulness terminology so that we're all speaking like plain English because Zen tends to speak in poetry. (laughs) Yeah, that's so good. And another beauty of the unified mindfulness when I started to do more intense unified mindfulness I said well I already have a yoga practice so do I need to add this on and somebody said oh no no you can take the practice that you're doing whether it's zen or yoga and if you if you bring the unified mindfulness lens to it you can see it kind of in a new way but it's all unified mindfulness kinds of brings in all these different practices into their umbrella so it's not like an extra Mm -hmm. right it's nice right right yeah beautiful and what would you um maybe tell us a little bit about what life is like now and what you would want to share with people about whether it's your journey or mindfulness in general or how they can get started or grow in their practice mm-hmm. well i'll tell you what comes to mind and then you can let me know if i'm answering the question the way you intended so I mean, what comes to mind for me when when you say, like, what would you want to share? It's very aligned with what, um, you know, what you and David and Mitch said at, at the beginning to me earlier, that this is for everybody. Like, nobody needs to be a Zen practitioner or a Vipassana practitioner or, you know, it's, it's like, this is all just... Um, um, improving our functioning, being more skillful in the way that's meaningful to us. And, you know, there are myriad ways that we can meet those those needs and those desires. And uh, so I, I work in many ways myself. And as you know, I work with unified mindfulness and I train teachers. I do administrative work for them. I do all kinds of things at Unified Mindfulness. And um, and I've worked for them for several years now. And I have my own ventures and they're, they're both, uh, I work in both secular and what could be called non-secular ways. Um, so I, I love, like my, I have a real heart for traditional practice and and um, people who just love meditation and want to, you know, find out how deep it goes. Who am I really? And explore those questions. And I, so I have a center now. I founded a nonprofit with my best friend, Louis Wilde. And our nonprofit is called the Center for Contemplative Enrichment. I can give you all the website later. And so it it's, wants to serve a couple of purposes, just to support 
primarily um, people like all of you too, people who are meditators, who are seeking to use that experience and passion to do good in the world to support other people. And what he and I saw when we were doing a lot of retreating was this gap for like, well, who's supporting these people? Well, you know, where's the community for those of us who just love this and, you know, we're looking like, where's my, you know, where's my people? How, what about a retreat for me? And this kind of thing. So we, um, we aim to have on-site retreats for small numbers of people. And I do a lot of private coaching, um, primarily for very um, dedicated meditators, people who are really serious about their practice, but they need some input, just like I you know, wanted so much at the beginning and I didn't know what I was looking for. So I'm a huge believer in that one-on-one support. And um, that's, you know, probably just about my favorite thing I do is I, I do a lot of private coaching. And then at the same time, um, because I have those kids and I started teaching first in the schools, I also saw this big gap in schools around educators um, not really knowing what mindfulness really was. Like they were using what they'd heard about as a classroom management strategy, but they were really just thinking about it as calming down and missing um, the profound benefits of training attention. And it's like, well, what could what could educators want more than a room full of students who are learning to pay attention well? But we have to learn how to pay attention before we can teach people how to pay attention. So, uh, so because of that experience, I also created my approach called embodied teaching. And, and I've taught classes on that and I have a, I have a home study class available and I have books coming out both on embodied teaching and on my more non-secular work that's called conversations on the path. So I love like, there are no limits to this kind of work we do. It's like, whatever you love, um, you know, early on in my experience it in the unified mindfulness community, sometimes you know, as we were training coaches, people would say, oh, isn't the market flooded? It's like, no, it's wide open because anything you love is related to mindfulness. And, you know, sometimes when I coach people, they'll say, oh, I'm sorry to bring this up. I'm not sure if it's related to practice. And I always say, as far as I'm concerned, everything's related to practice. So you can tell me what you want to tell me and I, I can show you how that's related to practice. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I love that, that, that now it's like, yeah, now I'm, you know, really getting my own thing established where I can keep doing this work, where I see a great need. I see um, this opportunity and responsibility to fill in some gaps that mm-hmm. it's just a pleasure because there's nothing I love more than that. So, Um, yeah, so those are some of the things I'm doing and, and I have, you know, I have my family, I have my kids and I, I would say I am a, an exponentially better mother to my two younger kids than I was to my older one when she was young because of practice, because I am so transformed, you know, I, 
have been sober for 20 years. And that had to happen for everything else good in my life to happen. And at the same time, I would say that becoming a dedicated practitioner um, has been by far the biggest transformation that has changed me so deeply and continues to change me that I, I can't help but, you know, how could I do anything else? How could I do anything else but, you know, but be available? And and like Shenzhen says sometimes, if he ever got put out of work, it would be for the best possible reason because no one was suffering anymore. Hmm. So I, I'm never concerned about not having anything to do. There's always plenty for us to do, being able to support people and developing these skills that just, you know, yeah, there's bumps along the way, but as long as we support each other in that, then we can always see that, you know, the the um, positives blow the difficulties out of the water, you know, when we just stay a steady course and you know work through the challenges that are inevitable as we come across um you know whatever we've been trying to avoid in our mind or our feelings and we can work through those things with mindfulness so i don't know we're so grateful did that answer (laughs) absolutely we're so grateful for your support and your wisdom and uh yeah just thank you so much for for sharing your story with us is there anything else you wanted to to talk about i feel very full from my end uh, so. <laughs> very great. yeah it's been great paula i i'm sure i there's nothing i'd rather talk about so rather than go on for six more hours i think i'll <laughs> let it go whatever was not said can be unsaid thank you Marcy thanks Paula I'll see you soon see you soon